I'm Jacob Goldstein. I'm the co-host of Planet Money and the author of the new book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. You're listening to Books on Pod, hosted by Trey Elling, a great, well-informed interviewer. I love talking to him. Hello, readers. David Herzberg is Associate Professor of History at the University of Buffalo and author of two books, Happy Pills in America, and his newest title, the one we're talking about today, White Market Drugs, Big Pharma, and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. David, thank you for the time. People may mistakenly think that the current opioid crisis is unique, but you detailed three such crises over the last 150 years. Before we get into the details of each, I think it's important to provide context on a couple of things, starting with the title of this book. What are white market drugs? White market drugs are drugs that are legal and sold through the social institution of medicine in America. So these are drugs that are prescribed by a physician in many cases and sold through pharmacies. They're produced by companies, many of them names that we're very familiar with. And so these are legal versions of, in most cases, the same substances that we think of as illegal street drugs, like these are opioids, a white market opioid could be oxycontin or morphine an informal market version could be heroin and so on down the line and what is the difference between dependence and addiction oh boy that's such a good question and there are are no simple and straightforward answers so the way that those terms are used in the present day is that dependence is something that will happen to everybody who takes a uh, dependence-producing drug chronically over a period of time. And this could be anything from you drink coffee every morning and then you don't drink coffee one morning and you get a headache. This is because your body has now reached a state where it requires the coffee for normal functioning. That's called dependence. When dependence is causing harm in someone's life and they are unable to stop using the drug that they're dependent on, we call that addiction. So the key difference there is a dependence that causes harm is addiction. However, in the course of looking at the history, I found that the relationship between these two concepts is actually a little bit more difficult because when you describe it, dependence is something different than addiction, you're suggesting that the person's relationship with the drug that they're using is different. A person who's dependent on a drug that may be good for them and may be neutral for them, you don't really know. Whereas a person who is addicted to a drug, we know that's harmful to them. In looking through the history, it seems that more often, whether you are dependent on a drug or addicted to a drug depends on external factors, like how easy is it for you to buy that drug? What happens to you when you buy it? Do you get patted on the head for being a good patient? Or do you run the risk of arrest? Where do you have to go to buy the drug? Is it reasonably priced? Factors such as where the markets in which you buy the drug affect how safe or dangerous it will be for you to use it. So I, in this book, I ended up saying, you know what, I respect that conceptual differences between those two concepts, and I think that they're useful. But as a historian, I'm not going to go back in time and try to apply them to one or the other. In fact, a lot of times, the dependence and its precursors, they call it habituation or a variety of other terms, these were just used to try to make it clear that, well, These people aren't doing that terrible thing that those dope fiends or junkies are doing. So it's a really fascinating distinction and one that I think deserves a lot of unpacking and needs a historical perspective. And finally, what is the difference between drugs and medicines? 
Drugs has two meanings. Drugs can be a catch-all category that includes every kind of substance that affects the nervous system at all. So it includes both medicines and illegal drugs. But more commonly, medicines are substances that are sold through medical markets. They're prescribed by physicians, sold in pharmacies, and we understand them to be used to treat illnesses, whereas drugs is an informal term for pretty much the same substances when they are sold without the blessing of the formal medical system. You define the first crisis as heavy on opioids from the 1870s all the way up until the 1950s. Why did opioids get so big starting in the 1870s going forward? The primary reason they got so big in the 1870s going forward is because almost all consumer goods got so big from the 1870s going forward. If you can remember back to high school history classes, folks, this is the period of industrialization, which means that a lot of places learned how to manufacture goods in large quantities more cheaply and transportation was getting better. So that meant they could go farther with less expense. And so if you looked at a graph of the stuff that people were buying in America in the late 19th century, all the lines would be going up. Chairs, yep, going up. Shirts, going up. Jelly, going up. And opioids, morphine, that's going up too. And so all of these new products were being sold in a society that had developed ways for consumers to know what kind of product they're buying and to protect themselves from things that were risky. And this system was mostly called caveat emptor. It's Latin for let the buyer beware. And in a system where you're mostly buying things from people that you know in local areas, this can work. You know, you better do your due diligence and know that if that your neighbor is the kind of person who waters down their alcohol before they sell it or not. But when you start to buy things that are made by distant companies far away that you don't know and you're uncertain of and practices are changing, there actually turns out to be a lot of consumer harm that comes in the late 19th century from things like cosmetics that are toxic and cause damage to the skin or eyes when people apply them to their faces, or swill milk. It's a kind of milk that was so watery that actually a baby could starve to death while eating it. And another of these problems in these newly exploding and largely unregulated markets was addiction, selling drugs like morphine and cocaine as well in the late 19th century. And Consumers, including in a lot of cases, physicians who weren't by and large very well trained in the 1870s, just weren't prepared with the knowledge that they needed to be able to buy and use those drugs safely. So you saw an explosion of use of both opioids and cocaine in the late 19th century. And like a lot of these products, that caused a lot of harm. When did drug makers become aware of the addiction potential in this era? And did they do anything to maybe try and slow the flow of drugs as a result? That's a good question. The addictive potential of opioids has been known since antiquity. So this isn't something that needed to be discovered. Cocaine, they did need to discover that. So that took a little while. But in general, you had some people aware of and starting to make noise about the problems of addiction as early as you know, just a few years after the sales started to shoot up in the 1870s. And the primary group of people who took action to do something about this white market crisis of opioids late 19th century were reformers among physicians and among pharmacists, and to a certain extent among some drug manufacturers, but they weren't taking the lead in this. 
it's a, a little bit of a complicated story, but medicine and pharmacy weren't strongly licensed. At the beginning of the late 19th century, you could put up a shingle and call yourself a doctor without much education. Same with pharmacists. And physicians and pharmacists, reformist ones, have been trying to do something about that and make it like you have to go to college for a certain number of years. You need to have this kind of experience and that kind of experience to get a license. And the addiction crisis offered a perfect example of why it was necessary to restrict the ranks of physicians and pharmacists, make sure they're well-educated, so on and so forth. And so they really pushed hard to try to address the addiction crisis to show both the need for and the value of an educated and professional medicine and pharmacy. Now, the drug industry at that time, number one, it wasn't the drug industry we know today. It wasn't a huge sector of the economy. It was nothing like railroads or other behemoths at that time. But they didn't show a lot of interest in restricting sales. And as a matter of fact, the biggest part of the pharmaceutical industry was something that was popularly known as patent medicines. It's a little confusing because they weren't patented, but they did keep their ingredients secret so that competitors wouldn't be able to make the same product. And secret ingredients and addictive ingredients don't really mix. <laughs> you know, you could, you could be taking a drug for trying to calm your stomach and then discover you've been taking morphine for months could be a problem. And that part of the industry, they are really an amazing thing to see. They're one of some of the earliest national brands. They're incredibly aggressive advertisers, helped give rise to the modern profession of advertising. Hard-nosed tacticians, one of their infamous tactics was negotiating a clause with a newspaper, like we'll buy all this advertising in your newspaper, but all of the contracts will just immediately be null and void if our city or state passes a law restricting patent medicines. And so then all of a sudden you had the newspaper editorial boards on your side, so on and so forth. So, you know, they weren't exactly good actors in trying to rein in this crisis, but there was a reformist wing of the pharmaceutical industry too. This is a wing that they called themselves the ethical branch of the industry because they promised to follow the code of medical ethics and not advertise to the public, only advertise to physicians. And these ethical houses became what we think of as the big pharma companies, the names that are still familiar today, like Pfizer and Park Davis and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And eventually the government does get more involved. You have things like the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 and the Harrison Anti-Narcotic Act of 1914. Why was the Harrison Anti-Narcotic Act such a remarkable achievement at that time? Yeah, it's really interesting. So this act is known, I mean, to the extent that people know it, which isn't a given, it was originally known as America's First Drug War Act, the act that prohibited sale of certain addictive substances that made it illegal to prescribe a drug to someone addicted to it. So really a drug war law. But when you look at it from the perspective of white markets, it's actually really fascinating because it becomes pretty much the strongest, earliest consumer protection law on the national books in America. This is a time when the federal government did not have a lot of power to regulate markets in general. This is before the New Deal. And, you know, it's just after progressivism. So there were some early efforts to try to do things like say, you must tell the truth when you put a label on your product. Simple things like that. What the Harrison Act did is it essentially created a 
closed system or a command economy in opioids. It said, everyone who makes this stuff has to register with the government. Everyone who buys this stuff has to register with the government. Every transaction, you have to keep a record of it so that authorities can look at it. And essentially, any sales that aren't approved of by the standard medical practices, those are going to be illegal. And we can use this record of transactions to prove illegal sales. And it also created America's first prescription-only drugs. This is something we're all really familiar with today. Some drugs you can only buy with a physician's prescription. Well, it turns out that morphine, heroin, and cocaine were the first prescription-only drugs, and it was created by this Harrison Act. When did we see a switch from allowing addicts to continue to operate and trying to help them out through various programs versus criminalizing them and, and essentially clogging up our prison systems at the local, state, and federal levels? Yeah, that's another important thing whose origins can be traced back to the turn of the century. Essentially, and this is a very familiar American story, in the late 19th century, the people who became addicted to opioids and cocaine were predominantly people who had access to the medical system. In other words, people who had the money to go see a doctor and a pharmacist, because that's where you got the drugs. And while the people suffering from addiction were those people who tended to be native born, they tend to be white, Protestant, they had some money because they were going to the doctor, that the response of authorities was these poor victims of this out of control market and of poorly educated doctors. We really need to help them from this terrible illness that they have. And you can see them. They desperately want to not be addicted and we need to help them. When those attitudes changed was when other people started to get access to these drugs and other people started to get addicted. How did that happen? Well, you had enormous volumes of pharmaceutical opioids and pharmaceutical cocaine passing through American cities with very few legal limits on them up until that Harrison Act in 1914. And so, of course, they also became available through a variety of channels to people who didn't really have the money to go see the doctor. Talking about, in a lot of American cities, this was a period of time of massive immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. So the first really large numbers of Catholics and Jews and people that the traditional elites in America, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the WASPs, they saw as an inferior type of white people, kind of a racial category that hasn't survived to our period, but this kind of not white, but not black. And so these folks didn't have great access to the medical system, but just like all of us, they had pains, they had suffering, or they wanted to feel good. The same kind of reasons that people in the white markets were using drugs. Well, they had those reasons and they could go to kind of a back alley pharmacist and buy there, even if a doctor hadn't given them a say so. And so as these folks started to get addicted, authorities looked at them and were like, this is an entirely different story. These are not innocent victims of a market that suddenly made dangerous products available that they didn't understand. Now, these are people that we already saw as criminals and already saw as morally inferior. And so we see them as just kind of like, they're just adding drugs to their palette of vicious behaviors, the vices, you know, sex work and alcohol and gambling and dancing and all the things they were doing. They just added drugs to that. They're a different thing. And we don't think that we can solve their problem in the same way that we solve these white market customer problems. So we're even going to call them different names. White market customers, those are going to be called patients. And these other customers, we're not even going to call them consumers at all. We're going to call them dope fiends and junkies and criminals. And that was when 
once those folks started to become the predominant face of addiction, because quite honestly, they were more of a problem for authorities. You know, there were a lot of them, they were poor, they were seen by a lot of native born Protestants as a cultural threat. And so when authorities started to focus their attention on those guys, that's when addiction became a dirty word. That's when the policy became lock them up. And interestingly enough, at that moment, right around 1914, when the Harrison Act was passed, everybody just kind of decided to ignore and forget about the addicted white market consumers. And our whole enterprise of addiction, what we think is involved, like what happens to people when they get addicted, what do we do about it, what contributes to it, all of that was built uh, by studying this one group of people who became addicted. There weren't even the majority of people addicted in America. Like throughout all of American history, there have been far more people addicted who were going to doctors and getting pills from pharmacies. But we've built our whole ideas of addiction and our whole set of policies about drugs and addiction based on studying this distinctive group and based on a set of ideas that these, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but these people deeply immersed in the racist ideas of that era built around, you know, these Italians and Slavs and Russian Jews and so on and so forth. It is interesting, or it was interesting to read in this book, example after example of what is essentially doublespeak, where you have two different labels that represent the exact same thing, but because of racial or cultural or socioeconomic differences, one group is bastardized while the other one is given quite a bit of sympathy. Yeah, and this goes really deep to the point that the way that I see it, there was in the late 19th century, a whole bunch of drugs that were really useful, but also really dangerous, got sold with few safeguards and a whole bunch of people got addicted and harmed. Then authorities, they applied two different policies, you know, almost like an experiment. Okay, well, with these folks, we're gonna put a limit on unsafe sales, the white market folks will put a limit on unsafe sales. And for all these people who are already addicted, we're basically gonna take care of them in one way or another, hmm. often by providing them with morphine. With these other folks, we're gonna try the other policy. We're gonna prohibit it, we're gonna punish them, we're gonna arrest them, and we'll see how these two policies work. One of those policies worked really well, regulating commerce while protecting and caring for consumers. That actually solved that crisis really well. Whereas in those informal markets, prohibition and punishment just made things worse. So you would think that the authorities would be like, okay, well, let's do the policy that worked. But because of this thing you brought up, this double speak, this double think, they looked at that experiment and they thought it proved something very different, which was those white market customers are good people. And that's why that works so well. Whereas the informal market customers are like purposeful deviants. They want to be addicted. They want to be bad. And that's why the policy failed. So they looked at this straightforward situation but those blinders of culture and class and race were so profound that they literally couldn't understand what they were seeing, and they just reapplied their prejudices. David, when and why did the regulatory agencies really start to operate more in the interest of big pharma instead of the general public? Ooh, well, let's think about that. There's this intermediate chapter where basically... The pharmaceutical industry and all the white market players, including physicians and pharmacists and the consumers in white markets, who we call patients, they all moved on 
to other drugs after the Harrison Act. And these were two other classes of drugs that have the potential to create dependence and addiction, sedatives and stimulants. And this is actually a crossover between two of the first three eras where even though the opioid crisis, the early opioid crisis ends in the 1950s, the other era actually gets started in the 1920s, correct? Yeah, that's right. That first opioid crisis, the crisis elements of it are over in white markets by 1910. It still trails out to the 1950s simply because some people remain addicted for life and they live a long time. But so when doctors lose the tools of morphine and cocaine to prescribe to patients who are coming in who are suffering from some range of, they often call it the pains of everyday existence. In the late 19th century, you come in with the pains of everyday existence, you might walk away with morphine or cocaine. But you can't do that anymore in the 1910s or 1920s as a physician in good standing. But luckily, there are these new drugs. One's a stimulant, much like cocaine was, that's the amphetamine. Those come out in like 1930s, 40s. And the others are sedatives, starting with barbiturates as early as 1910s. And so those provide this opportunity for everybody in white markets to do something that, honestly, everybody in white markets likes to do, which is to buy and sell psychoactive drugs, not just people in white markets. That's a pretty common human behavior uh, across all markets. And that's when it's with those drugs at that time period that what I referred to earlier as the ethical pharmaceutical industry, the ones that didn't advertise to the public and promised to follow the code of medical ethics, that they actually, for the first time, started to grow and become a really economically powerful sector of the drug industry. They used to be totally overshadowed by patent medicines. They were just this tiny little group that delivered pure powders to pharmacy. Now they had their own patented brand name drugs by mid-century. And among the top sellers of these drugs were always sedatives and stimulants, barbiturates, amphetamines, tranquilizers. And as they built up their economic might, they became a stronger voice in Washington with regulators. And particularly in the 1950s, when you had this big push to elevate American free markets as an alternative to we're having a cold war against communists. So anything that looks like regulation, we're going to cast a skeptical eye on. And we really want this freedom to make consumer choices. This has an impact on the pharmaceutical industry, too. They ride that horse all the way into town and get a lot of freedom from the kinds of restrictions that were imagined or envisioned for their products, because, you know, their products while really helpful, are also really dangerous. And so it's in the 1950s that you can first see something that is identifiable as big pharma with its hand in Washington and actively trying to inflate sales of drugs in dangerous ways. A lot of things are risky. Drugs aren't the only things that carry risks. The question is, when you're buying something, do you have what it takes to be able to buy it and use it safely? And because drugs can be so risky, you know, there's a lot of stuff you need to know to be able to buy and use them safely. By the 1950s, the drug industry was full in on a strategy of recognizing that you could sell a lot more if people bought them both safely and unsafely, because that's a lot more sales. Regulators at that time were trying to do something about this, both in the profession of medicine and also in the FDA and other 
federal regulatory agencies, but there wasn't enough political muscle behind reining in the free markets during this Cold War decade when what's good for GM is good for America and in that stereotypical attitude. And so they just didn't have the muscle that it took to rein them in. If I'm not mistaken, you are driving at what you label as the high point of the medicine drug divide in the mid-1950s. How did that lead to catastrophes on both sides of this, both the medicine and drug parts of this divide? Yeah, it's a great question. Because I've been talking about white markets, let me talk about that side first. Barbiturates and amphetamine both can produce addiction. Barbiturates have particularly additional harms because they affect hand-eye coordination in ways that make it dangerous to, for example, drive. And they also can be fatal in their overdose relatively easy, especially because their actual effects can impair judgment and make it harder to make sure that you don't take too much. And so with massive sales of these drugs, you had a white market catastrophe that was characterized for the first time by a lot of fatal overdoses, not to the level we see today, on a per capita basis, but not many orders of magnitude less. Like it was a really, it wasn't like some cute old, your grandfather's crisis. This was a real crisis with people really dying in large numbers and a lot of other harms as well. And this was because essentially amphetamines and barbiturates were supposed to be prescription only drugs. There was a weak law passed for that in the early fifties, but efforts to restrict sales more vigorously or more robustly were successfully fought off by the drug industry. And as a result, you know, if you were a 16-year-old girl in Muskogee, Oklahoma, you could probably go into, as a matter of fact, I have direct evidence that in Muskogee, Oklahoma, they did go in and you could just buy amphetamines over the counter and however much you wanted. So you had people who are susceptible to addiction and related harms buying potentially addictive substances with very little tools to protect themselves from that. And so lots of addiction, lots of death by the 1950s in white markets. On the other side, even as efforts to bring new regulations to those white markets were failing one after the other in the face of people saying, oh, you know, free markets, this is socialism, you can't do that. The same Congress debating there was a bill that was going to bring new controls to barbiturates while also controlling what I call informal markets, which people also call street markets or black markets or illegal markets. They were considering a bill that would do both, crack down on both. They failed to pass any new restrictions on barbiturates, but they massively ramped up the punishments for buying, selling, and possessing heroin particularly, but all illegal drugs in those informal markets in the same law. So you had, for example, technically speaking, you could get the death penalty for selling heroin if you're an adult, to someone who's underage. That penalty was never actually enforced, but it gives you a sense of just how draconian the punishments were that were passed at that time. Mandatory minimum jail sentences were incredibly long, and it was based on this total demonization of people buying and selling in those informal markets. So what you had was essentially a free-for-all on both sides of the market. White markets, real restrictions were parried away by the drug industry, so you had free and easy sales to most people who could at least pretend to be a, quote, patient. It was much better to be white than to not be white. It was much better to look middle class than not middle class if you're trying to buy over-the-counter from a pharmacy. But it was still within those limits. It was wide open. Then in the informal markets, you have what looks like the opposite policy instead of a free market. You have prohibition. But these things actually 
produce a really similar outcome because you still had heroin being sold. You still had consumers who were willing to pay a lot of money for it. And because it was illegal, there were essentially no regulations. Everyone was already breaking the law. And that meant that those markets were incredibly dangerous too. People selling there weren't thinking, well, how can I sell in a way that will best take care of my customers? They're thinking, how can I not get arrested? Or how can I do this really quickly? And so both of them became really dangerous places to buy drugs and for weirdly similar reasons. But because we're so used to thinking that things that happen to different races or different classes or that all drug use in medical context must be good. And if you use drugs out of medical context, it must automatically be bad. That it's really hard to see those similarities, but they're there and it's remarkable. And just as a final note, it's also remarkable that that's happening at the same time as the high point of this system of dividing up consumer markets that started back in the era of the Harrison Act of segregation. You know, you had two water fountains, two schools, one well-funded, one not well-funded. You had two different entrances to the movie theater, and you had two different ways that you could buy drugs. And while the rationale wasn't as overtly, we will divide this by race, that's what it meant in practice in a lot of ways. And so you saw this segregated drug markets becoming really dangerous for people buying on both sides. And although we've been talking about this era for the last couple of answers now, just to uh, clarify for anybody listening right now, the second white market drug crisis that you define does involve sedatives and stimulants, starts in around the 1920s, goes all the way until the 1970s. And as you were describing how out of control the white markets, both formal and informal, were in the 1950s and 60s, it was interesting that reform once again became a viable option in the mid to late 60s into the early 70s. Why is that? Yeah. So essentially, at the end of that first crisis, there was a system put in place to deal with it that the people who built it thought was fine. And that was that segregated system I'm talking about, white market controls on opioids and prohibition in informal markets. And that system held really strongly through the 1950s and through the early 1960s, because on the one hand, if you challenge the white market side, You could be called a socialist because you wanted all these regulations that would be hampering the free market sales there. And if you challenge the informal market side, you were running up against Jim Crow segregation style attitudes, racist attitudes, saying that the people in those markets who had originally been those Southern and Eastern European immigrants, but by the 1950s, they're becoming increasingly black and brown people, African-Americans who'd moved up into cities during World War II and next folks as well. And so you were running into, on the one hand, racism, and on the other hand, this free market ideology that was really strong in the 1950s. So what makes it possible to fix the situation after, by the way, decades of disaster, you know, like by 1950, you already had people dying on both sides. By 1960, you had a decade of people dying on both sides and nothing had been done. What makes it possible to do something wasn't simply the accumulation of dead bodies. It was the change in the political architecture that sustained the thinking that made those crazy solutions look like they made sense. So civil rights activists started to challenge those racist assumptions about black and brown people and opened up a cultural space to think about them as fully human beings who weren't already criminals, who just added drugs to their already criminal inclinations, but were people who'd had the same dignity and 
hopes and rights as everybody else, then so-called second wave feminism drew attention to the concerns of women. And particularly, there's a whole wing of second wave feminism about medical sexism. And that drew attention to the fact that, hey, you know, women are the ones being prescribed the overwhelming majority of these drugs. And now that we're talking about women's problems, that starts to look really obvious. And, you know, how do we not see that before? This is a real issue. And then added to that was a third political element, which is the rebirth of consumer advocacy as something with political muscle. This is something President John F. Kennedy campaigned on in 1960, and he started to implement, and it was continued by his successor, President Johnson. And when you put these three things together, you have a way of thinking about social problems that's really different than the last generation of reformers in terms of attitudes towards free markets and attitudes towards social hierarchies of race and gender. And this made it possible to do a few things. Number one, to see that what was happening on both sides of the medicine drug divide were actually pretty similar. Addiction was happening in both places. The people weren't as dramatically different between them as stereotypes would have led you to think. And it also made it possible to imagine, well, we might actually be able to do something about this because there's a real political constituency for reining in free markets. There's just scandal after scandal in the corporate world. And people are thinking, hey, you know, we love free markets, but this has gone too far. There's a huge scandal about drug pricing in white markets, like that these pills that cost two cents to make are getting sold for three bucks a piece and about pharmaceutical advertising. And so you get a new coalition of people who are interested in the drug issue. And there's one key element of that coalition that is no longer playing as important a role, which is what I call moral crusaders. And these are the who see non-medical drug use as inherently morally wrong. And they tend to be champions of America's traditional elites. And they see moral crusading as a way to kind of ward off the threat of Southern and Eastern European immigrants or growing populations of African-Americans in cities and things like this. They were always such an important part of any coalition trying to do anything about drugs. They were the ones who helped get that Harrison Act passed back in 1914. But in the 1960s, it starts to look like you can pass a law without them. You could ease things up on informal markets and try to help people who are addicted there. And you can really tighten things up in white markets and really protect people there. And you could just kind of leave out the whole moral crusading about dope fiends and junkies and how we need to be terrified of them. And that's what starts to happen in the late 1960s. Ironically, it's capped by a law that is mostly remembered as starting American drug wars because of how this law later got used. But this is in 1970 when the Controlled Substances Act was passed. It was actually much harsher on pharmaceutical companies than it was on so-called dealers and dope fiends. And it really imagined a world in which a kind of pragmatism ruled, which is, okay, people are going to use sedative stimulants and opioids a lot. They have been using them a lot since the 1870s. Let's just try to make sure that we give people the tools they need to protect themselves when buying those things. And then if they get harmed anyway, we're going to try to care for them. This is the era when methadone maintenance becomes available to people with opioid addiction and all kinds of addiction treatment. So it really could have been the basis for a radically different approach 
to drug policy, and it was for a very short time. The Controlled Substances Act also created something called gray markets. What are those? Yeah, so one of the things the Controlled Substance Act did is it restricted sales in white markets. So you could have been a woman in rural Wisconsin who had been buying amphetamine from your physician, from your family doc for like 20 years, 25 years, and just taking them every day. And the Controlled Substances Act suddenly says, well, actually, amphetamine is so dangerous that there's only two reasons you could prescribe it. And all those reasons that you used to get it for, they aren't legal anymore. And so you have a situation where a bunch of people who had traditionally been able to turn to white markets to buy drugs were suddenly kind of cut out of the white markets. They couldn't buy the way they used to. And this produced a wide variety of reactions. Probably a rural Wisconsin woman would have just had to deal with the consequences of suddenly being forced to stop a drug that she had undoubtedly become dependent on over two decades. But in other cases, it led to the development of what I call gray markets, which are markets that involve medical actors, like there's a physician there, and they see people that are called patients, and they prescribe to them, but there isn't actually anything resembling a therapeutic act happening there. They're just basically selling drugs under the cover of a physician's license. People call these things script mills or pill mills, and they emerged to cater to groups of people that had traditionally been able to buy in white markets and suddenly found those options limited. And these things were, on the one hand, they're an outpost of unregulated sales, dangerous, a bad thing. On the other hand, they were kind of like a, what do you want to say? Like they're something like on a pressure cooker that lets out some steam. When you're collapsing those markets, there are a certain number of people who were addicted and therefore really strongly want to continue buying the drug that they can no longer get from their doctor. Well, one place, as we all know from tragic and maddening experience in recent years, is one thing that they might do is turn to buy illegally, which means that they don't know what they're getting. And that's a moment of immense danger for someone who is using drugs, because if it's more than they expect or a different drug than they think they're buying, they could experience an overdose and they could die. So it's better in that situation if you can go to a gray market doctor and get a script for your drug. Let's say uh, one of the most popular drugs for script mills in the 70s was Quaalude, famous as, quote, the love drug. It's a sedative. And you could get a script for Quaalude and then buy actual Quaalude at the pharmacy with your not really legitimate script. And that means you're still getting what you know you're getting. And when you take it, it's going to be what you expect and you're not going to overdose because you didn't know what you're doing. And so I feel ambivalently about them. American history is full of these kind of sideways, okay, we'll do the smart thing, but we'll do it in the most reluctant way possible. Hmm. Like, yeah, people with addiction should be able to buy their drugs safely and get the kind of care that they need. Is this the way that I would choose to do it? Absolutely not. But on the other hand, it did get done. And so you had these kinds of gray markets emerging at this time, and then they become a, a sort of a fixture in American drug marketplaces, and they wax and wane over time. They get really big again in the opioid crisis at the turn of the 21st century. The third crisis involves opioids, sedatives, and stimulants, and runs, according to your book, from the 1990s through present day. Why do we see a resurgence of white market drugs in the 1990s? The most basic reason is that 
political coalitions shifted. So remember, I talked about how in the late 60s and early 70s, there was this new coalition that was powered by civil rights activists and feminists teaming up with consumer advocates, and they produced this period of reform. That period and that coalition don't last very long at all. By the early 1970s, on informal market sides, you see new crackdowns and new, even more explicitly racist campaigns against informal markets, starting in my home state, New York, with the New York Rockefeller drug laws in 1973. They bring back mandatory minimum jail sentences. They usher in this era of three strikes, you're out, like very long prison sentences for anything informal markets. And these get super intensified in the 1980s when you have a new form of cocaine called crack, it's really just cocaine and baking soda pre-prepared so that you can smoke it, which means that the psychoactive effects happen more intensely and more quickly and then go away more quickly. But it also means you can sell them in smaller, cheaper quantities. In other words, cocaine suddenly became a drug that you could sell to poor people because you could sell it in small amounts and it gets marketed in urban areas that have been facing economic crisis because of disinvestment and what federal authorities called benign neglect, a deliberate policy of just kind of letting them wither away. And it's incredibly destructive. You have an illegal drug and thus an unregulated drug sold in areas where people are desperate for jobs and the crack economy provides jobs and they're desperate to ease suffering and, and pursue pleasure, which in economically devastated areas is harder to do. There's not a lot of healthcare and not a lot of entertainment. So that produces this highly racialized problem where addiction once again gets associated with racial minorities in cities. The crack episode in the 1980s, really authorities start to think again, well, addiction is this thing that happens to black and brown people in cities. It's something about them that causes it. Meanwhile, you have the Reagan revolution in the 1980s, which is that this whole consumer advocates, all they did is produce all this bureaucratic red tape that has kind of tied down the colossus of the private sector with all of these little strings of red tape. And I promise to unleash it. It's going to be free again to solve our problems. And that wasn't just a promise in, I don't know, like deregulating the airline industry. It was also in pharmaceuticals. And one of the biggest problems that pharmaceutical industry was unleashed to resolve was the problem of pain. Starting in World War II, authorities have recognized that pain was itself a medical phenomenon worth paying attention to, and people in pain should be cared for specifically for their pain, aside from anything else they may or may not be suffering from. But there was this huge political battles, as Keith Whelu describes in his book on the political history of pain, how do you help people with pain? Do you provide assistance to them? Or is that a danger that you'll kind of create dependence on that assistance and you should really just show them tough love and just be like, you know, deal with it. And this would go back and forth and back and forth until in the 1980s, in this moment of deregulation, there's a deal struck that the conservative side of this says, okay, we'll take pain seriously and that people should get help. And the liberal side of it says, we agree that that help should come through the private market instead of having pain be central to the social security disability roles, for example, we're gonna let the drug industry take care of pain. And so you have this political agreement that deregulating access to opioids is gonna be really helpful in solving this big problem of pain. And that whole conversation 
the whole discussion of pain is taking place in a context where everyone assumes that they are talking about white people. There's deep histories of racial assumptions about pain that widely believed myths that black people don't experience pain as intensely as white people that are built into those ideas. So in other words, by the end of the 80s, you have a rediscovery and a rebuilding of the conditions that produce drug policy catastrophes. You have punitive, racist ideas about informal markets, and you have fantasies that, that white people won't get addicted in white markets because there was this idea that people in pain if they take drugs, they won't get addicted. And this was something that became a, an absolute pillar of belief in white markets at this time that helped make it make sense to, well, if they're not gonna get addicted, we should give them lots of opioids so that they won't suffer their pain. So the end result of this was unregulated sales of dangerous drugs in both markets with consumers not having enough information to use them safely. And the result was on the one hand, the opioid crisis, and on the other hand, a crisis of mass incarceration as you just started to lock up everyone who is using drugs outside of the medical system. Well, as these things are converging, you also have something that you pointed out in this book where the American Psychiatric Association, they advent something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Now, this is the third edition of this in 1980. How big <laughs> of a deal is this DSM-3 and then we're all the way up to five now in providing medical justifications for big pharma to continue pumping pills into our system. There's an important chapter in the 80s as well, because it's not just pain that the private sector was seen as an efficient way to respond to it. There were also a whole bunch of other kinds of human suffering that get packaged up as psychiatric illnesses. So this is the era when depression becomes a really common diagnosis and antidepressant sales shoot through the roof. It's when some kinds of anxiety are packaged as, you know, like a panic disorder or social phobia, and they get associated with particular drugs. It's when Ritalin started really being prescribed to kids. Absolutely. You're right. Ritalin is not amphetamine, but it is like amphetamine. Adderall, by the way, the other ADHD drug is amphetamine. This is the era when those drugs shifted from being niche products to treat depression, actually, to being something that was prescribed really widely for something that we now call attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so you have basically a lot of psychic problems and sufferings of various kinds that people are experiencing getting defined as a diagnosable illness and being attached to a particular drug. And the ability to do that can be traced back to that book you talked about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM-3. Let me just give a pocket narrative about this. This is a book that defines all the various things that a psychiatrist can diagnose someone with. The first two editions you haven't heard of because they weren't very important in the practice of psychiatry. They were very Freudian in the sense that they were psychoanalytic. They didn't have clear boundaries between different mental health problems, because in psychoanalytic theory, it's dynamic in the sense that the problems that you're facing are something that evolve over time in, in terms of how you respond to your context and so on and so forth. But the DSM-3, which comes out in the 1970s, takes a radically different tactic and says, you know what, psychiatrists are constantly arguing with each other over what causes 
depression and where's the boundaries between this illness and that illness and they say we're losing legitimacy with the public because we can't agree on things let's shift have a little copernican revolution here and instead of organizing things according to what caused them we're just going to organize them according to symptoms so the definition of a mental illness becomes a list of symptoms and if you experienced a certain number of those symptoms a certain amount of time then you have the illness this is very convenient because it defines illnesses very clearly and this matters because number one it means that insurers are willing to reimburse patients to get treated for these illnesses and number two it allows you for the first time to prove that your drugs work to treat an illness using a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. It's very hard to do those kind of trials with talk therapy, for example. But if you can just measure, well, this person started getting eight out of these 10 symptoms six times a week, and after a certain amount of time on the drug, they had six of those symptoms four times a week, that means that this is 27.6% effective. And that meant that they could prove to the FDA and get FDA approval, and it meant that they could give tools to psychiatrists and patients who, after all, both want to be able to do something to make someone feel better, and then the insurance companies will reimburse it and everybody's happy. But what happens is that the number of distinct illnesses just starts to multiply. You start out with 75 different mental illnesses, and then you have 300. I think the most recent one is well over five or 600. And drug companies are not stupid. They are like, wait, in order to get a drug approved by the FDA, it has to be shown effective to treat some kind of illness. And illnesses are multiplying like flies here. And um, somebody has to pay for the research that produces a new illness. Why wouldn't it be us? And why wouldn't we make sure that the new illnesses are ones that our drugs will be shown to be effective in treating? So you have circular things like in trying to figure out, well, what are the symptoms of depression? Well, how do you know what the symptoms of depression are if you don't know what depression is? And someone says, ah, well, I've got a great idea. People who feel better when they take antidepressants, they must have been depressed, right? So whatever they were feeling, the symptoms they originally had before treatment, that must be how we define depression. In some ways, I guess that could make some kind of sense. But if you think about it, it means that this definition is going to produce a set of symptoms that are the ones most likely to be addressed by antidepressants, right? And this happens in a lot of different places, most famously with antidepressants, but also with a range of anxiety, kinds of anxiety. And so what this does is it kind of rehabilitates the white market prescribing of drugs for those pains of existence that we talked about from way back at the turn of the 19th century, that you can now go to a doctor when you're just not feeling all that great. And they might prescribe you Prozac in 1989. Now, I got nothing against Prozac. My point here is not that that's bad and people shouldn't use drugs. I'm only in the position of focusing on safety. I've got no moral judgment of whether it's better or worse to be using drugs or not. What it does, though, is it reinforces the idea that the pharmaceutical industry is a source of helpful, healthful, therapeutic drugs that should go to the doctor visiting classes. And that's what makes the whole pain and oxycontin story believable because on its face it's a totally outlandish thing to say take this drug and there's no risk that you'll become addicted it's an opioid 
People have known since before ancient Greece that opioids were addictive. How can you make that claim? Well, that claim makes sense because you've already built this story about the kind of people who go to doctors, these socially approved white patients, and they're already in the practice of getting Prozac and Xanax and Ritalin and Adderall, which by the way, we call it an opioid crisis, but all those drugs shoot through the roof and white markets and half the people who die of opioid overdoses have actually died of combination opioid and tranquilizer overdoses. So it's a little bit of a complicated story. I hope I told it in a way that makes sense, but it is a big contributor. No, you did. And last couple of questions here, David. Oregon just legalized small amounts of all drugs. Is this good or bad for the white market? Well, what I'll say is that in looking at 150 years of drug policy, I have never seen an instance when it was useful to criminalize possession for personal use, not one. And so decriminalizing possession just seems like a no-brainer to me that it will obviously be incredibly helpful. Criminalizing possession just assumes that the consumers are criminals. It makes no sense if what you're worried about is their health. There are better ways to take care of their health than to criminalize them. In terms of impact on white markets, I'm actually not sure. I haven't thought of that question before. It'll obviously make it easier for informal market consumers to make better decisions and to access healthcare. But I'm not sure what impact it might have on white markets because for white markets, possession has always been already legal. You show your prescription and then you can have a personal supply. So I hope that it'll be a basis for reorienting drug policy more generally around the things that I think make sense to orient them around, which is safety. Same way, there are a lot of desirable but dangerous goods that we have, such as like cars, incredibly dangerous, but incredibly desirable. We just make sure that we make it as safe as possible, even though we acknowledge it can never be 100% safe. I hope that laws like Oregon's which will save money. You don't have to spend as much money policing and incarcerating people for drugs, and you can use that money to help make their lives safer. I hope that kind of pragmatic, sensible approach can spread from there. And what it would look like in white markets is just a frank acknowledgement that sedatives, stimulants, and opioids, three classes of drugs, clearly addictive, have been for 150 years, it's time to just say there will be no miracle opioids. There will be no miracle amphetamine. There will be no miracle sedatives. They're always going to be risky. And we should just proceed, you know, like anytime some company wants to say, well, now there's no risk, just say that's on its face not true. And if you are making that claim, that's evidence that you shouldn't even be allowed in this market at all because you're a bad faith actor. And perhaps on that point, what do you think the next 10 years hold for white market drugs? Ooh, well, if history is a guide, white market drugs will be in a better place for a while, uh, while living memory of the most recent crisis remains. But that's tricky because we've really seen this crisis as an opioid crisis. And I don't know if we've really adequately dealt with the extent to which amphetamine sales and tranquilizer sales are through the roof as well. I always ask my uh, seminars on the history of drugs and alcohol in the U.S., I say, I'm going to close my eyes. I want you to raise your hand if you use ADHD drugs that are not prescribed to you. And then I want you to lower your hands while my eyes are still closed. And then just give me a rough percentage. And it's usually close to 100%. That use illegally? Yeah. Wow. College students. Wow. And I, I think here we are, we're just shoveling an addictive drug 
at a population that's young and young people learn languages really quick and they learn drugs really quick too. Like addiction is in part like a learning process and it's such a gamble. Will everything be okay? I don't know, but I'll bet you that we are seeing some consequences of that right now with people being isolated and stressed out and, and such. So it's not clear to me yet whether we'll really continue to pursue those robust consumer protections that white markets need. I think we've started after a calamitous first misstep. The first regulations were from just almost like definitionally insane, which is we're going to try to identify people who become addicted to white market opioids and then make it illegal for them to buy white market opioids. So you got people who are addicted to opioids, they're going to buy opioids and you shut them out of the only safe market that exists. And that's what transformed it from a crisis of addiction to a crisis of overdose. So it's not like we automatically are going to do the right regulations, but I hope that for a while we'll see greater common sense in regulating those. He is David Herzberg, Associate Professor of History at the University of Buffalo and author of two different books. The first is Happy Pills in America, and his newest title, the one we've been talking about today, is White Market Drugs, Big Pharma, and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. David, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very informative book. Thanks for having me, and thanks for a good conversation. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.